Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And today on the show, we're going to be talking about The Devil Rides Out, a 1968 hammer horror film about the perverted terrors of the satanic cults operating throughout interwar Britain. Uh, this movie stars Christopher Lee and Charles Gray and is based on a novel from the 1930s by Dennis Wheatley. And uh, I will say, all of the satanic themes aside, if I could only make one comment about this film, it's that it is a jackpot for anybody who <laughs> likes listening to Christopher Lee telling people not to do things and ordering them to go to bed. 
Yes, and not children, mind you, grown adults. Yes. <laughs> this is one of the most paternalistic movies I've ever seen. It has it has an authority figure. That's Christopher Lee. He represents order, the sign of the cross, uh, conservative values, and he's just bossing everybody around constantly. Everyone stand back. The, the proper British adults are here. <laughs> And it's funny because I, I, of course, I love Christopher Lee, uh, but his character in this movie is so pompously self-serious and bossy and paternalistic. I feel like it's going to be nearly impossible for modern audiences to avoid regarding this character with anything other than like amusement or contempt, uh, which I think can be extrapolated to feelings about the movie in general, because this is a very competently made horror movie. But if you were to just give me the pitch, like, you know, read me a description of what this is going to be. It's a hammer horror movie made in 1968 about satanic cults starring Christopher Lee as Maximum Order Daddy and Charles Gray as a psychic Aleister Crowley who likes to make people garrote themselves with necklaces. <laughs> I would assume this was going to be a jolly, campy frolic charged up with like gratuitous sex and, and fangs and orange blood. But no, uncharacteristically for its provenance, this movie is culturally conservative and deadly serious, which in this context means it is pretty much just inviting us to laugh at it rather than with it. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, not that there are a lot of built-in laughs <laughs> uh, in this film anyway, but yeah, you know, it's, it's very much uh, one where you, ha you, you have to find some fun in a character uh, like Christopher Lee's character, or really most of the adult characters uh, in this film, because they're, they're very hard to root for, impossible to love. Another thing I would say is that looking at the film's marketing material would also lead the average person, I think, to the wrong conclusion about its tone and content. Oh, absolutely, especially concerning the poster art. Now, this was originally re released uh, under the title we're discussing it uh, as The Devil Rides Out. Uh, this is the, the, the British title. This was the title of the book upon which it was based. And so the, the, the British poster had like a devil riding a horse, and it looks, it looks pretty cool. I wouldn't shy away from putting this on the wall. But then it's released in the United States as The Devil's Bride, supposedly because they thought The Devil Rides Out sounds too much like a Western. Mm -hmm. or, or, and, and I don't know, maybe this is just me, but I'm thinking maybe they thought it sounds like a motorcycle film. It does yeah. sound motorcycle-y to me. And they're like, no, 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 let's call it The Devil's Bride. But the poster for this one, oh, it's one of the finest uh, 1970, uh, 1960s, 1970s horror posters you could possibly uh, go for. Right. So it has our, our goat head demon, our, our goat of Mendez, which uh, does appear in the movie. The funny thing about him is he has the goat horns, but then he also has floppy ears. And you would think, oh, the floppy ears, that makes him look funny and cute. But they add to the horror. They, it, it, it works. He's got a big eye in his belly, and then in his ro and then he's like holding um, uh, one of the main actresses in this movie in his arms, presumably you know to take her to hell with him. And uh, then in his robes, you see reflected a lot of the monsters and horrors that appear throughout the film. Yeah, beautiful yellow background that also kind of works, and oh, it's just it's a beautiful poster. Uh, also, I would say that the the just the image of the monster man carrying the woman, the unconscious woman. This is of course. 
uh, an iconic uh, theme you find in various uh, poster art from uh, yesteryear. Uh, not entirely unproblematic, uh, but still very iconic. So this one, this poster's really hitting a number of buttons, really coming out with guns a-blazing, and makes you think this is going to be the, the psychedelic, satanic uh, film par excellence. And uh, I have to say, uh, if that is what you're expecting, be prepared to be maybe a little bit disappointed and find yourself going in a slightly different direction. It's still, uh, this film is still a lot of fun. Uh, it has some great satanic stuff in it, some great black mask magic sequences. Uh, but this is a scene depicted on the poster that does not actually occur in the film. It's kind of constructed from elements of the film. Yeah, yeah. Another thing that we must stress is that this is a film that that has n- not just one but two Bond villain actors in it. Mm-hmm. So, of course, Christopher Lee, uh, you know, we we know Christopher Lee on this show. He he plays the assassin Scaramanga in The Man with the Golden Gun, a uh Roger Moore Bond movie from the 70s, I think widely regarded as one of the the worst Bond movies. Um, and then you have Charles Gray as the villain in this movie who plays Blofeld in Diamonds Are Forever, the latter of which is without a doubt the funniest Bond villain portrayal in the entire history of the franchise. Have you seen Diamonds Are Forever? Okay, I've seen both of these, uh-huh. but both of them, I last saw them when I was a child. Okay. Uh, so the man with the golden gun, I remember as being amazing because he had that golden gun. (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) That's the only thing I remember, though. The golden gun is very cool. And Christopher Lee is very cool. But uh, Charles Gray in Diamonds Are Forever, he he plays Blofeld with this I don't know what you you call this style of vocal delivery, but it's the Charles Gray is Yes, yes. Making mud pies Is that the one that takes place in Vegas a little bit? Yep. Yeah, they go to Las Vegas. That one's not good either. Okay, yeah, I barely remember that one. But, you know, you, you, you brought up uh, Blofeld. This reminds me of something. So one of the things I kept thinking about in this film was like, oh, we got two, two Bond villains. We got a Bond villain actor, famous Bond villain actor playing the, the hero, and a famous Bond villain actor playing the villain. And um, Though this it, movie it, was before both of those. Right, right. But it made me wonder, especially with Christopher Lee, is Christopher Lee just not good at playing... Uh, like, like how much of it is, is like, he just needs to play villains. This is an actor mm. who excels at playing villains and maybe he shouldn't play the heroes. And then how much of it is just like, this is kind of a crummy hero role. I don't know. Yeah. I, I think it might be more the latter because, okay. So he's a villain in this other movie, but you might think, well, maybe the problem is he's just too imperious and he can't be a, a kind of, he can't have that likable, jolly protagonist energy that you would, you know, to really get people on your side. But I would say he has that as the villain in The Wicker Man. Uh, oh, when that I is showed, true. Yeah. So when Rachel and I watched The Devil Rides Out, Rachel observed that this movie is kind of inverse Wicker Man. It's with Christopher Lee playing the Sergeant Howie character in The Wicker Man, just like a, a very uptight, conservative person in the face of all of this depravity and devil worship. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. So I guess point. in The Wicker Man, it's not explicitly uh, devil. It's, you know, just paganism. Though, of course, I would say the mindset that makes a lot of these Satanism movies and, uh, and stuff like Dennis Wheatley's novel would probably mostly conflate the two. Right. If it is not Christian, then there's a good chance that it is devil worship, according to this mindset. Yes. And, and that's the other thing is that this movie, I would say, is Satanic Panic before the Satanic Panic. It, it's like a progenitor mm-hmm. of Satanic Panic, even going back to the novel, which came out, uh, it did come out in the 1930s, right? Yeah, this was a 1930s novel. And I've actually read that like this, 
the, the books of Dennis Wheatley, because there's more than one that, that ends up uh, concerning the occult, and we'll get into that in a bit. Um, I've read that like the, these helped sort of influence the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, what would become proper satanic panic in the decades to follow. Uh, I believe uh, historian Philip Jenkins has, has particularly pointed to a 1927 novel by Herbert Gorman titled The Place Called Dagon and, and pointed this out as a key influence on the satanic panic themes to come. Uh, and the book apparently influenced such uh, occult authors as Dennis Wheatley, as H.P. Lovecraft, uh, and Robert Block. Now, I noticed that right before you picked this movie for Weird House, you sent me a, uh, you sent me a link to a news segment produced sometime in the 80s that was t- pure satanic panic it was just it's unreal the kind of stuff that used to run on like mainstream media in in the american press and on tv in the 80s i think was what was this 2020 or i believe it was like, yeah 2020 satanic panic um making just like on on its face absolutely absurd claims about devil ritual you know uh, satanic rituals and stuff like that going on in america but presented completely seriously uh, as if this is 100% fact interviewing these experts who are obviously like have no idea what they're talking about uh you know finding devil worship in every every movie and music uh, one thing that was weird is it even singled out a movie like the exorcist which I would say is a movie that is about as faithfully Catholic as a movie could be. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's ultimately um, the demons are there, but God is there. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's. I mean, The Exorcist, especially at the time, was regarded as a pretty extreme film and you know very shocking and was very much the talk of the town. Maybe part of that is like it's not necessarily about having watched The Exorcist. It's about the idea that The Exorcist exists. You know, it's popularizing satanic themes. I guess, but so anyway, so so you got interested, I guess, in in these uh, like satanic panic movies through that, or is that a coincidence? Oh, I mean, I'm always interested in satanic themes and things, you know. Um, <laughs> it's you know, it's it's part of it's become such a part of our pop culture. So many of the there are so many movies on our our list of potential episodes that concern Satan worshippers in one way or another. Uh, though weirdly enough, I think the first Satan worship movie that I saw as a child was the Dragnet movie that Dan Aykroyd did. did you, <laughs> yeah. Do you remember this one? Yeah, Tom Hanks? Yeah, well, Dan, yeah, Dan Aykroyd and Tom Hanks, and yeah. I forget who plays like the high priest of Satan, but it's like Hollywood. Is and Jack maybe Palance? Little, maybe Jack Palance is in there. Uh, there's some older actor. Uh, but yeah, it's that's I don't really remember if that movie is good or not, but it has a lot of satanic cult in Hollywood of kind of imagery, you know, the robes, the goats, um, but it's know, satirical sex, drugs, one, every right? kind of filth. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, if you're into if you're into horror films, if you're into into like metal music or anything like that, you know, like the, the various themes of like movie Satanism are kind of unavoidable. Yeah. Okay. Well, should we hear some trailer audio? Let's do it. Rex, do you believe in evil as an idea? Do you believe in the power of darkness? That's a superstition. Now, there you are wrong. The power of darkness is more than just a superstition. It is a living force which can be tapped at any given moment of the night. Why, on one night of one year, should these people live in mortal fear? Goat of Mendes, the devil himself. 
Christopher Lee as de Richelieu, who knows he must fight the devil's power to the death. Oh, God. Don't look at the eyes, Rex! Eyes, eyes, once filled with love, are consumed with fear. For Tanith is now promised to the devil. Listen carefully to what I say. This is Makata, the devil's chief disciple. Your will is leaving you, slipping away. The devil rides out. From bestseller author Dennis Wheatley's famous novel fills the screen with a special kind of visual terror. All you think quickly. Back to back. Join hands. You will hear his evil. You will feel his evil. You will see his evil. All right. So uh, before we get into the people here, we should probably, I don't know if we stressed, yeah, I think you mentioned it uh, briefly, but this is, of course, a Hammer horror film. Uh, have we discussed a Hammer film on the show before? Oh, I mean, I know it's come up in passing. I don't know if we've mm-hmm. featured one. We, yeah. We've talked about him with Seth a lot. Uh, our, our regular producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson, I think sometime in the past couple of years, got like the ultimate box set of Hammer films and was just going through them. And we were talking yeah. about him. <laughs> So if you're not familiar, Hammer put out a lot of British horror films in the, I don't know when their their full run was. I, I associate them with the 60s and the 70s. And, uh, you know, a lot of films starring Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee and various Dracula, Van Helsing, mummy kinds of roles. Uh, but then also they branched out into just more general kind of sexy vampire movies. Right, right. Yeah, definitely there's a shift that occurs as things get more into the the late 60s, 70s vibe. And one of the interesting things about this film that that has been pointed out, in particular, horror historian Kim Newman discusses this a little bit in a a little short extra on the splendid Blu-ray for this movie, that, that this is ultimately more of a 1930s movie. It has 1930s horror sensibilities, or at least 1950s, I believe. Yeah, more, more mm. like a 1950s horror movie, as opposed to a 1968, uh, you know, early 70s film, which would have been, you know, more in line with the cultural changes that are happening. This is a film, uh, <laughs> but this more for the older uh, generation, that's terrified by what's occurring, but is not ready to quite uh, embrace it or exploit it. Right. It came out in 19. 19- 68, but it is it, it seems to be wagging a finger at the audience and cautioning them against any strange or, or unorthodox beliefs or practices. All right. Well, let's let's start at the top. Uh, the director on this baby was Terence Fisher, who lived 1904 through 1980. Um, a British film director best remembered for his Hammer films. He directed a slew of them, beginning in, I believe, 1951 with The Last Page, but really kicking into high horror gear in 1957 with The Curse of Frankenstein, starring Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. He was already an established TV and film director by this time, though, but he ended up directing a lot of the big Hammer films, including, but not limited to, Horror of Dracula, Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, Dracula, Prince of Darkness, and others. I have a big poster for Terence Fisher's production of The Mummy right next to me mm-hmm. on the wall here. It's from 1959, and uh, I have the Belgian poster for it, I believe, because the title on it is uh, Le Malediction des Ferrons, mm-hmm. and uh, the, the Curse of the Pharaohs, I guess. 
But the poster is great because there's like the mummy, which is played by Christopher Lee in the Terrence Fisher movie. Uh, but like it's approaching and then there's a, a lady screaming in the foreground. And then behind the mummy, people are shining a flashlight and the beam of light is just like piercing right through it. Oh, yes. Yeah, so, yeah, I have seen this poster. This is a beauty because there's kind of like a cosmic sense to the mummy in it. All right. We, men- we mentioned Dennis Wheatley already. Dennis Wheatley wrote the novel, The Devil Rides Out, upon which this is based. Wheatley lived 1897 through 1977, a British author of popular thriller novels, uh, often with occult themes. And one of the things that, uh, uh, that Kim Newman points out is like, this guy was a, a very popular author at the time. He says, mm-hmm. like, if you went to the horror section of your British bookstore, uh, half the books would be Dennis Wheatley novels. So he, he was a big deal. He was a popular author. He's said to have influenced the likes of Ian Fleming uh, because mm. a lot of his, his books were, especially his earlier stuff, you know, it's, it's sleuth-centered. Uh, you know, it's about uh, espionage and spies, but also very much around, uh, based around the sort of, like, you know, classic British machismo, uh, mm-hmm. you know, heroes going out and risking their lives, punching somebody in the face and saving a, a woman, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But then things begin to get a little more, he ends up throwing in more occult themes as he goes. Now, I'm certainly no uh, Wheatley expert. Uh, I tried reading one of his books once, and it didn't grab me. But my understanding is that, yeah, a lot of his series, and he has multiple series with recurring characters, start out more traditional and then end up latching onto occult themes. And we definitely see this uh, in his uh, Duke de Richelieu series, uh, which, uh, of, of which this book is a uh, part. Right. Christopher Lee's character in the movie is the Duke de Richelieu. I think his actual given name is Nicholas. They only say that like once or twice in the movie. Usually he's just mm-hmm. Duke or the Duke the or Duke. Richelieu. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the first book in that series, however, is just pure espionage adventure. Um, and then the second book uh, that comes later is the, Devil's Ri- the Devil Rides Out, full of not only occultists and Satanists, but actual supernatural forces. So it's like, imagine you had like a couple of James Bond movies, and yeah, they've got giant squids and whatnot, uh, but then um, in, in super science a little bit, but then you get to the point where it's like, oh yes, the devil has shown up. Okay, so it's James Bond versus Baphomet. Yeah, sort of, or kind of like a, a proto-James Bond, you know, Yeah, because uh, it you know, very much came first, but he has another series, the Gregory Salas series, that I think does much the same thing. Uh, the first book in that, uh, Black August from 1934, imagines a future, futuristic 1960 and economic collapse, so very much uh, you know, a different beast. But then by 1964, he returns to that character in They Use Dark Forces, which has the hero battling Nazi occultists and I think teaming up with a, another occultist to take them on. Uh, this is the one that I actually tried to read once and just could not get into it. Um, your mileage may vary, but I, I could not get into Wheatley. Uh, when you pasted in a paragraph from the opening page of The Devil Rides Out, I, I got to say, I was not uh, attracted to the prose style. <laughs> no, I, I, don't think, uh, I don't think there are a lot of certainly modern cri- critics that are praising his prose. Now, one of the interesting things, since this is the this is not the first book to have these characters in it. You could consider this movie a sequel to the 1934 all-spy, zero-Satan's thriller, Forbidden Territory, directed by Phil Rosen and based on the first uh, Duke novel, uh, though the protagonist's name, and I think all the main characters' names are changed for some reason. Alfred Hitchcock originally optioned the book. 
Uh, speaking of film adaptations, uh, Wheatley's uh, occult novel To the Devil, a Daughter was adapted in 1976, starring Christopher Lee, uh, Richard Widmark, uh, Denholm Elliott, and Natasha Kinski. And other films based on his work include uh, The Secret of Stambol and The Lost Continent. Uh, he allegedly invited Aleister Crowley to dinner to research The Devil Rides Out. Uh, I ran across that tidbit. I don't know if they actually had dinner. Maybe he just invited him, but anybody, anybody could invite uh, Alistair Crowley to dinner, so I don't know. Well, um, I, I would I would say, again, one thing to stress about this is that this is different than a lot of the other devil worship movies, uh, horror movies that you might see from the early 70s, because uh, I would say this is, is in itself and is based on material that is genuinely contemptuous of, of any alternative religious practice or devil worship or anything perceived as devil worship. It's, it like believes that is real, that people actually do it and it is evil and will destroy you. Uh, right. So it, 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 this is, I think that the author here is not, it's not just like exploitation. It is genuine belief in the danger of the, the satanic forces massing against good society. Right. Yeah. The, the, uh, the original intro by the author is, is, kind of funny to read because he's like uh this is all fiction but i did research it and i am convinced satanists are in london doing their thing don't try this at home because your soul is in danger which yes. is a weird line to walk it's like uh i'm gonna exploit this uh I'm, I'm comfortable exploiting this but don't look into this any further than what i have presented here it kind of reminds me of like uh, the Da Vinci Code, you know, the Dan yeah. Brown books where he's like, okay, so this is a work of fiction, but all of the historical claims and the the situation of this story are 100% real and true, which in Dan Brown's <laughs> case, they are not. Right. <laughs> all right. So, yes, to my taste, uh, Wheatley's work is kind of insufferable uh, and there are a lot of problems with it. But uh, the gentleman who adapted the screenplay is uh, a writer that I think holds up exceptionally well, and that is the American uh, novelist uh, and screenwriter Richard Matheson, who lived 1926 through 2013. American writer who is best remembered as the author of the excellent 1954 novel I Am Legend, upon which three films have been based, uh, 64 is The Last Man on Earth, starring Vincent Price, 1971's The Omega Man, starring Chuck Heston, and 2007's I Am Legend, starring Will Smith. He also wrote the excellent haunted house novel Hell House, the thriller Duel, and The Shrinking Man. All of these were adapted into films. Uh, Duel by a young Steven Spielberg, uh, as well as uh, such other adaptations include What Dreams May Come, A Stir of Echoes, and others. Hmm. He also wrote a lot of TV, including 16 episodes of the original Twilight Zone, including the iconic Nightmare at 20,000 Feet episode. And he also wrote for such shows as Night Gallery, uh, original Star Trek, the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, Thriller. Um, and as far as films go, his screenplays include Trilogy of Terror, uh, Corman's House of Usher, and of course, Jaws 3D. Jaws 3D? That was Matheson? <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> I mean, uh, one of the things about Matheson, and this is something that um, Kim Newman points out, is like Matheson was great. Uh, Matheson's you know, work certainly holds up to a modern reader so much better than Wheatley. But also, yeah, he worked with Corman a bit, so he could also work very fast. Yes. Uh, and, and presumably, he says, he could probably work uh, at a re on a reasonable budget if you were working for Corman. So. Okay, I see. So it's the Corman principle. It's like... Uh you know, coming to Charles B. Griffith and saying, I need a movie called Attack of the Giant Crabs. It needs to be done in four days. Yeah, for presumably. 
But anyway, I mean, Mathis is great and, and has uh, has created so much wonderful work over the years. So it's, it's interesting, though, that in a very British film, we have this very uh, you know American writing force that is adapting it and tweaking it a little bit, and and also you know ultimately removing many things that probably didn't work all that well in the Wheatley novel. One last thing, I didn't know that Matheson had written one of the Corman Poe movies, and I'd been thinking we need to do one of the Corman Poe movies. Oh well. Stay tuned. We, we may just do that. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. 
Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, now let's get into the cast here. Uh, so kind of like last last uh, episode, last the last new episode we did. I mean, what can you say about Christopher Lee, who plays the Duke here? Um, you know, we, we uh, he, he's been in so many things. Uh, lived nineteen twenty two through twenty fifteen. He has one of those careers that had like multiple. You know, he had some sort of dips uh, here and there, but also, uh, you know, especially later in life, he was in so many uh, great films and you know memorable films at least. Uh, you know, he's known for playing so many villains, Dracula, Saruman, uh, Scaramanga, uh, Count Dooku, Lord uh, uh, Summer Isle, Frankenstein's monster, Karis the mummy. He also voiced uh, the villain King Hagrid in 1982's The Last Unicorn, which I just watched uh, more than half of with uh, with my family last night and mm. was really enjoying that. So, uh and, and that also reminded me, I was looking up some stuff about Last Unicorn. On Last Unicorn is one of these where the, they hired Christopher Lee for it, and he was very enthusiastic about it, was apparently a big reader. And he showed up with the original novel with things earmarked, uh, saying, these absolutely cannot be cut. These lines have to stay in the, in the picture. And he apparently did this with um, Lord of the Rings as well. Oh, yeah. And, and probably with this film, because I understand that The Devil Rides Out was also a film where he liked the book and he was really excited for the film and probably showed up with the book and was like, no, sorry, sorry, Matheson, this goes in. This stays in the picture. That's funny because I actually watched part of an interview, uh, or I think it was an audience Q&A with uh, some event that, uh, that he was doing and a member of the audience asks him, uh, you know, it's been rumored that you have a large occult library. Uh, is that true? And how'd you get interested in that? And he, he says, no, it is not true. I have maybe four or five books on the occult. And one of them, he says, is an original copy of the devil rides out signed by the author. So he's clearly <laughs> a fan. 
Uh, but then he also cautions the audience not to experiment with devil worship. <laughs> He's basically the Duke. Um, but I, I mean, yeah, gotta love Christopher Lee. Um, it's hard to pick a favorite role. I'm, I'm tempted to go. I mean, he he is Saruman to me. It's one of those performances that is so thoroughly the character that it replaces whatever imagination you might have had from the book before you saw the movie. He just embodies it perfectly. But then the the other thing I would say, maybe even more than that, is Lord Summerisle. I mean, he is he is the gentleman pagan from The Wicker Man. It's it 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 it's, it just can't be beat. Yeah, yeah. These these are all great roles. I I love all all the roles that I mentioned already, and th- and there are plenty of Christopher Re- Lee performances out there I haven't seen. Uh, so I'm sure there's some other gems. I know one thing I've said on the show before. I'm uh, I'm not a huge fan of the the Star Wars prequels, but there's always that moment when Christopher Lee shows up in them where I uh, I think the way I've put it before, and and I stand by this is that it's like in a movie that is kind of stuffy and suffocating. Christopher Lee walks on screen and suddenly it's like someone has opened a window and let fresh air in and now everything's, oh, 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 th- things feel great now. Yeah, yeah, I, I love his portrayal of um, of Dooku in uh, in those two Star Wars films. And I especially love in the opening of The Revenge of the Sith where you have that, that, that duel between Anakin and Dooku and then, of course, you have uh, Palpatine watching on and he's ultimately like, deciding his fate. Yeah, that's a, it's a great sequence. And, and Lee's great in it because he's, you know, he's, he's very much... Much, he's great. He was always great at playing this kind of grandiose and egotistical villain. And then we get to see like the vulnerability uh, briefly as he's betrayed by his master. So uh, yeah, Lee always brought uh, brought something great to the to the table. But anyway, it's an interesting casting choice for this character of the Duke de Richelieu, the, the protagonist of the movie, who who represents uh, order and the side of good against uh, against the chaos and evil of, of Charles Gray as as Mister Mokata. But yeah, it, 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 I'm kind of wondering, like, could you have cast somebody else in this role, and how would the movie be different if you had? Yeah, like part of me was thinking, well, maybe, like, maybe Lee, especially at this point, wasn't as good at like portraying like likable and uh, vulnerable characteristics, like whereas someone like Peter Cushing, uh, his close friend and you know, and frequent co-star, maybe he would have been able to. To deliver that better. Mm. But then again, I come back to the way this character is written, and maybe anybody would have been stuffy and, un- and unlikable in this role. One thing I got to say is the the bizarre choice, and, and maybe this reflects how the aesthetics of, uh, of Satanism have changed over time, but they give Christopher Lee devil worshiper facial hair. They give him the classic Satanist goatee when he's, pl- when he's playing the guy who's against the Satanists. Yeah, and then it is interesting when we look at who's playing his adversary, Mokata, the uh, the, the high priest of the uh, what the London chapter of the the Church. Uh, yes, or, it's know. not actually the Church of Satan, but this whatever the satanic cult is calling itself. Um, this is played by Charles Gray, who lived 1928 through the year 2000. I think they're called the Friends of the Goat. Friends of the Goat. Okay, so. <laughs> Gray, not as legendary as Christopher Lee, perhaps, but certainly a celebrated British character actor in his own right, often remembered for playing aristocratic and villainous roles, you know, uh, very sort of tight-lipped, uh, clinch-jawed villains, yeah. uh, very British. Uh, and, but he played some big ones. Uh, uh, we already mentioned uh, his, his run as Blofeld in Diamonds Are Forever. Uh, but he also, he also played a good guy in 67's You Only Live Twice. So he's actually in two Bond films. Oh, that's right. He's like another spy who uh, Bond meets somewhere. And I remember he, he gets a knife in the back through a paper wall. 
<laughs> I, don't, I don't remember that, but um, he this isn't fun. He played Mycroft Holmes. This is Sherlock Holmes' brother, uh, both in the 1976 film The Seven Percent Solution, and also in the Jeremy Brett, uh, excellent Jeremy Brett Granada television series of Sherlock Holmes. Oh, I've got to see those. Oh yeah, yeah, he's he's, he's a lot of fun. And wait, was the Seven Percent Solution? Is that? Um... Uh, Nicholas Meyer? It is, yes. This was his novel, yes. Oh, I bet that's great. But of course, for many of you out there, Charles Gray is best remembered as the criminologist and expert in 1975's The Rocky Horror Picture Show. It's just a jump to the left. Yeah. Uh, But he was in a lot of other things, too. For instance, he was in Richard O'Brien's follow-up musical film, Shock Treatment. Uh, which I have, I have not been able to get into yet. Um, I keep thinking, oh, I love Rocky Horror. I'll give Shock Treatment a try, and I'll listen to the music a little bit, and it just hasn't happened. He's also in the the wonderfully fun 1974 werewolf whodunit, The Beast Must Die. This is the film that has a werewolf break, as you'll remember, Joe. Right, so yeah. You can, to, to collect it, your thoughts about who the werewolf is. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also dubbed for Jack Hawkins in the film Theater of Blood and others after Hawkins' uh, larynx was removed to combat throat cancer. Theater of Blood is the other movie we talked about in the episode with uh, about uh, Dr. Fibes. It was the other movie where uh, Vincent Price must return from the grave uh, or, or after being assumed dead to get revenge on nine specific people who he believed wronged him. <laughs> So uh, Gray is fun in this, uh, but he's he's very much playing a kind of stern and serious Alistair Crowley with hair. But also, as uh, this is, I thought, another fun tidbit that Kim Newman points out, is he's kind of playing Alistair Crowley's idea of what Alistair Crowley seemed like to everybody else. You know, like <laughs> like Crowley himself was, you know, uh, you know, a bit of a, a con man in his own right, you know, uh, and was many other things. Uh, but but he may have thought that he came off like this to other people, this highly charismatic uh, British occultist with hypnotic eyes that just instantly uh, has power over everyone when he walks into a room. And then the other interesting thing is that you have this character, th- this is a film, again, where Satan, anything that's not British and Christian is potentially Satan, Satanist in, in nature. Um, it's potentially Satanism. And you have this character with his name Mokada uh, that I'm to understand maybe has more of an international flair in the novel. But here we have him played by a, a very British actor with a very British performance. Yeah, I don't know how much we've emphasized the, the xenophobic themes yeah. of this movie already. But yeah, there is very much a sense that like that which is foreign is very likely associated with the devil. Uh, though I, I'm I'm a little confused. I, I don't know. I, I know there's uh, always some cultural crossover between between Britain and France. But is Richelieu supposed to be British or French? His name is French, and he mentions. Um, I think he mentions that he and another character that their fathers had worked together in some kind of French organization. Uh, but he also just in every other way appears to be British. Yeah, it's very confusing. Yeah, because it's a very French name. But in the film, at least, it's a very British portrayal. Likewise, um, you know, Mokada seems to have been played up in the novel for being something kind of, uh, you know, international and, and the foreign and threatening. But of course, uh, uh, Mokada's, the name Mokada has been, uh, has been very British for a long time. I mean, I believe it's tied to some important banking families and so forth. So uh, I'm a little confused on that. 
All right, should we go to the next actor? Um, yeah. I was trying to find how to pronounce her name, and I was sorry that I could not find a good example of it being said out loud, but uh, it is her name is, I think, Nike Arigi. Uh, her first name is spelled like the brand Nike, N-I-K-E, but I, I guess that's Nike. Okay. Yeah, she plays Tanith Carlisle um, in this film, which is probably one of the more likable characters uh, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a very low bar in this film but uh, yeah she was born 1947 french visual artist and former actor uh, as an actor she was only active from i believe 1966 through 1974 appearing in various european horror and art house films she had a small part in ken russell's 1969 film women in love 1971's Countess Dracula. Other films include parts in Sunday, Bloody Sunday, uh, playing a nun in Ken Russell's The Devils, uh, A Season in Hell, The Perfume of the Lady in Black. That was her last picture. Uh, But uh, then she went on to to focus on her art, and she has a website, and you can look at examples of her art there. Some of these look like surrealistic oil and watercolor pieces. Yeah, I was looking through her paintings, and I, I really like some of them. They're they're interesting. Yeah. So some are uh, just like like watercolor landscapes showing I don't know a waterfall or a city skyline or something, and then others are really surreal. There's one of these uh, women in I don't know having like a big. It might be one of those like things they put on your. I don't know what these are called. These things they put on your head at the hairdresser that like do a perm on you or something. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a big glass helmet, but it's absurdly large in the painting, making it look more like a science fiction device. Like it's scanning this, this lady's brain while she's sitting there with rollers in her hair, holding a baby. It's a very, I don't know, weird, interesting painting. And I like it. At any rate, uh, she's good in this. Uh, she's acting opposite a whole lot of stiff, unlikable male characters. Uh, so, but it's easily the character that seems to have like the most inner conflict, uh, uh, you know, she's, she's not ultimately not given a tremendous amount of agency in this. So it's not, you know, it's not one of like you know the the great roles uh, one might hope for, but uh, you know she she breathes a lot of life into it. Yeah, there are several parts where she just has to gaze into the camera with like uh, with hypnotized or possessed eyes, and her eyelids go super wide, and she she has some kind of quality to her irises that makes them really good for this kind of shot. It looks intense. <laughs> All right. The the next actor of note is Leon Green playing Rex Van Ryan, uh, though the character is dubbed by Patrick Allen. Uh, Green lived 1931 through 2021. British actor who appeared in such films as A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum and Flash Gordon. In this, he is the ultimate square-jawed British man who is ready to punch Satanists, punch windshields, whatever it takes if it means saving a pretty lady from non-British ideas. He is our turbo lug. You, uh, <laughs> I think you mentioned when we were chatting about it, you said uh, Rex is ready to punch and kiss. Yes. And that, that's about it, yeah. Somehow I kept thinking, well... This doesn't quite communicate his physical genre, which is sort of hunky lug, but he reminded me of a cross between Chris Cooper and Buddy Hackett. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. He's also our, our skeptic for like three minutes anyway in the film because he's because uh, the Duke is like, Satanism is real and it's a major threat to everything oh, we oh, know and love. That's and Rex is like, focus. I don't buy that at all. <laughs> but, then, but then the Duke is like, look at this. And then Rex is like, I'm convinced. Yes. <laughs> The, the 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 famous uh, the power of darkness is a living force speech. Yeah. So a lot of this film is going to concern another character 
who they're very concerned about, um, and that is the character Simon Aaron, played by Patrick Mower, born 1938, still active as he was just on a British series called uh, Emmerdale Farm. He's done a bunch of TV work, as well as such films as the 1970 Vincent Price movie Cry of the Banshee and 1971's Incense for the Damned. Uh, he's pretty good in this, in part because, again, his character is one of the few that seems to be in, in genuine conflict mm-hmm. and gets to act a little bit more and ultimately, ultimately maybe is a little more relatable. I kept thinking he looks like Tobey Maguire. He kind of does. Yeah, he does. Quick note that we have, a, we have, we have a, that goat monster, the goat of uh, Mendes that shows up later on. Uh, this is uncredited, played by Eddie Powell, who lived 1927 through the year 2000, a 6'5 British stuntman who also wound up in costume as such creatures as the xenomorph in Alien for stunt purposes. Uh, oh, yeah. The mummy in the mummy's shroud. And yeah, in this film, he plays the goat himself. Uh, Powell also did stunts on such films as Willow, Legend, Batman, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Krull, and various Bond movies. Uh, on that note, speaking of monsters, I'm just going to briefly mention the makeup effects artist responsible for many of Hammer's best monsters. Roy Ashton was the monster maker on this, uh, 1909 through 1995. And then the music... Uh, this is James Bernard, uh, who lived 1925 through 2001, a classmate of Christopher Lee's at Wellington College. He composed the scores of a whole bunch of Hammer Horror films, and later in life, he wrote an original score for Nosferatu in 1997. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. 
Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. All right. Are you ready to talk about the plot a little bit? Let's do it. Okay. So the movie starts with a reunion of old friends. We get Rex Van Ren. Uh, again, this is played by Leon Green, arriving by aeroplane, which he pilots himself and uh, landing in some kind of, I don't know, field. It's just like a landing strip in uh, somewhere in rural England, it looks like. And he meets with Christopher Lee, playing the Duke de Richelieu, who is watching with binoculars as he lands. And I assume Rex is arriving from overseas, but I'm not positive. Yeah, I think in the books he's actually American even, which is uh, oh. uh, interesting. Huh. Again, we just Englished him right up. Anyway, they appear to be old friends reunited after some time apart. And uh, and so we learn that they have a mutual friend named Simon, and uh, Rex is curious, where is he? Why isn't he here to greet me at the airfield like you? 
And the Duke says, well, he hasn't heard from Simon in three months. He doesn't go to his club in London anymore, which uh, that's a horrible sign. And he's moved (laughs) into a large house in the country. And Rex is worried that Simon might be in some kind of trouble. But immediately, this should be an alarm bell for how this character is going to go. The Duke is like, no, that's preposterous. He would have told me if he was in trouble. (laughs) Uh, But they decide to go pay him a visit. Oh, and when they do, I don't know if you notice the same detail. It involves the Duke. They get into the back of a car and the Duke talks through some kind of hose lined with red velvet to tell the driver where to go. Yeah, I don't I don't think I remember seeing this in a film before, but I guess this must have been a thing uh, because Maybe. this is supposed to take place in the, the 30s, I believe. Yeah, so he talks into the velvet hose and then, yeah, they get there. So they head out to Simon's mansion. And as soon as they're at his doorstep ringing the bell, Twilight has fallen, there's creepy music playing, a butler answers the door, and Christopher Lee is immediately highly suspicious. You see him squinting and furrowing his brows at everything in the house. He just like looks at a vase suspiciously, <laughs> and uh, he gazes into an open doorway like, mm, that's trouble. And <laughs> then they get led into the next room where it looks like Simon must be hosting a nice party. And again, it's one of those things where you look at the party and it looks like there's nothing wrong with it at all. It looks nice, but the Duke immediately appears to have some kind of internal alarm siren screaming in his brain. But I would say the only thing that looks unusual about the party is that like you walk through and you like hear people talking and you see people's clothes and stuff. And it appears that not everyone here is from England. Like there appear to be people from all throughout continental Europe and West Africa and South Asia. And then they're like, dear God. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's nothing in this scene that would would make you think it's anything other than maybe, you know, know, various academics uh, from around the world have gathered to discuss, uh, you know, policy or something. Yeah. Uh, You know, a UN meeting or something. But yeah, but they're just, they're just immediately horrified. This is no good. Simon is in the deep. So yeah, again, I think this is showing these weird xenophobic assumptions of the movie. It's just like, oh, there's tons of people from other countries here. This must be devil worship. So they see Simon, they come up and talk to him. Uh, Rex is like, uh, sorry for interrupting your party. And Simon is like, oh, it's just a, a meeting of a little uh, astronomical society I've joined. Uh, so because th- they looked outside when they were uh, when they were outside earlier, they looked up and there appears to be some kind of like observatory dome at the top of his new house. And then we meet some major characters. We meet Mr. Mokata, played by Charles Gray. He's not scary yet in this scene. In this scene, he's more in Blofeld mode. Uh, he just has to say, you know, well, well, excuse me, gentlemen, there's something I must say to Simon. And he takes him aside. And then they get a moment to speak with Tanith, played by uh, Nikkei Arigi. And she's confused about their presence. I think she assumes that they are part of the coven, but then she says, surely we're not meant to be more than 13. And as soon as she says 13, this gets a dramatic wheel about from Christopher Lee. You know, he, he whips his head with his eyes wide and you know that like he, he, he's really sure that there's trouble now. So they're asked to leave, but first the Duke asks, uh, you know, uh, before we depart, may I see your observatory? Because he says he's recently become interested in astronomy. He would like a peek through the telescope. And Simon tries to object, but as always in this movie, Christopher Lee just gives him the do as I command you eyes, and then they head on up. Now, we'll see this observatory room in a couple of scenes, but 
there there is a giant goat head Baphomet <laughs> on the floor tiles yeah. and another one, I think, on the wall. And when they come in, they're like, this is interesting. Are these astronomical charts? And Simon's <laughs> just like, oh, it's just a decoration. <laughs> Uh, but then the the real the real thing that that seals the deal is there's some noises in the closet and we get the chicken reveal. Rob, do you want to describe this moment? Oh, well, this is this is great. So in in just like pure inquisitor mode, um, the Duke goes over to the closet, pulls it open, and you know we we see this uh, you know view the shot. It's shot from the closet. Horrified look on his face uh, because he opens his basket and. Uh, there are a couple of chickens in there, uh, and these are the the hallmarks of black magic. You can't practice black magic unless you've got uh, some chickens around to sacrifice. I guess, yeah. But it was the pair of chickens that that clinched it. That this is definitely black magic, and not the Baphomet circle on the floor. Right, right. The Baphomet circle is certain. Like there are other reasons to have chickens around. Uh, there would even be other reasons to have, say, a black cat and a chicken around, but to have the uh, the, like the full um, Baphomet floor, uh, yeah, that's that suggests uh, something else. Oh, but then we get the so he sees the chickens and Lee knows for sure what's going on, and then we get I would say the line of the film that stands out more <laughs> than any other, which is he turns to Simon and he says, "You fool! I'd rather see you dead than practicing black magic." <laughs> it's such a, it's such a yeah, great and telling line. Like this, it, it may it just adds extra unlikability to this character. You know, um, like I would, I would rather you be dead than adhere to some ideology that doesn't perfectly line up with my own. So the Duke exhorts Simon to leave the house. He's like, "Come with us. You know, we we will get you out of this." And Simon doesn't want to go, so he just punches him out, just knocks him out. They repeatedly do this to Simon, by the way. By the end of yeah. this movie, he will have had major head trauma. Yeah, it, I have to admit. I, I mean, I I know that you're not supposed to punch people in the face and try and knock them out. You're not supposed to hit people over the head with with bottles and so forth, which these things happen in films all the time. But um, a few weeks ago, I, I sustained a, a very mild concussion. And it was not fun. And ever since, I've been maybe a little, uh, have like heightened sensitivity to these moments in film. So like something like this happens and I'm like, oh, that's a concussion for sure. Uh, and then I'm like, oh, he just had a concussion earlier in the picture. This is so dangerous. Stop punching Simon. Yeah. I love it in movies. They just treat hitting people on the head as like general anesthesia. Well, it yeah. just renders the, harmlessly renders them unconscious for some short period of time. How are you supposed to end a scene and have somebody, you need to get them to another location and have them wake up and observe things. So you need a, you need some head trauma in between. Yeah. So anyway, they go back to the Duke's house and there is a great hypnotism scene. This is one of the first scenes indicating that uh, Christopher Lee's character not only knows what the, the, uh, the rituals of darkness are, but he can practice them himself apparently. Oh yeah. This, this of course, ties in so perfectly with a lot of the satanic panic energies of the decades to come. And even some of the, you know, the scare tactics you see in other social panics and, you know, fundamentalist and conservative um, uh, mindsets where the individuals warning you about the evil, whatever the evil happens to be, they know all about it. They've got all the grisly details and they will list it for you. They know all the terminology. They have seen the stuff, um, <laughs> but, but they're safe. They're concerned about your safety. And so, right. like, the Duke is already coming off like, is such a hypocrite here. Yeah. So he, th there's this hypnotism scene where he, like, puts a mirror in front of Simon and he's, 
He's like, look into the mirror, Simon. And he <laughs> brainwashes, like he seizes his mind somehow. And he's like, you must go to bed now. Is <laughs> <So, laughs> one of the many great sending people to bed scenes. He sends him up to his bedroom. <laughs> he puts a crucifix necklace on him. He says it's a symbol of protection. And then they break out the snifters of brown liquor. I love that there's just like numerous unlabeled uh, jars of brown liquor for them to drink from. Mm-hmm. And uh, Christopher Lee and Rex, they sit down to have the talk about devil worship and uh, he asks rex do you believe in evil and you know rex is like ah magic and all that i think it's hocus pocus Uh, but then the duke gives a speech about how the power of darkness is not just an idea but a living breathing thing and it's clear now that they're up against something big and they may have to do battle with it throughout the rest of the film meanwhile simon upstairs in the duke's bed his eyes snap open uh, he seems to be under the influence of something, and he starts gathering up the chain of his crucifix necklace and starts garroting himself with it. And it seemed for a minute like he was going to die. I assume this character, he's a goner. But then the butler comes in and helpfully removes the crucifix from his neck, and then Simon just bolts out the window. So at this point, the caper is on. For the rest of the movie, the Duke and Rex will be in pursuit of their friend Simon, and eventually also of Tanith to free them from the cult and from the jaws of Satan himself. And so maybe uh, at this point we can just sort of zero in on several scenes and sequences throughout the rest of the movie that that struck us. One of which I think we've got to talk about is the return to the house, because the first thing the Duke and Rex do when Simon gets out of uh, the Duke's place is like, well, maybe he went back home. So they go break in through a window and, uh, and look around to see if he's there or if Mokata's coven is still there. That's right. They go up to the observatory <laughs> and then uh, what starts happening to the floor? Uh, well, out of that goat head on the floor, uh, you have this uh, sinister smoke begins to rise and uh, we essentially have our first proper summoning of the film. There are like, I think, three different summonings of note. And uh, it seems to summon, you know, it's like smoke's bringing in some sort of form. What's it going to be? It's going to be it, a monster, right? Yeah, Surely. a monster or, you know, a demon. Maybe it'll be the goat guy from the poster. But no, it's just a dude that looks slightly stoned. Yeah, I was, <laughs> when we first saw him. So there are some good monsters later on, but I was just like, this is just a guy. But he, he's got bloodshot eyes, but it's yeah. just a, a dude. I've seen this this uh, this summoned being described as a jinn or a demon, but it's just Nigerian-born actor Willie Payne in red pants with a with a legitimately kind of creepy smile and yeah. very stoned-looking eyes. Um, they're able to play it up a bit, so it's not like it doesn't work. Uh, but it also seems to lean really hard into this idea of non-white equals possibly satanic thing. Yeah. Yeah, the, like, this scene didn't feel great. It was. It no. seems to lean more on those kind of xenophobic assumptions that the movie has. Yeah, because the only other non-white act characters in the film, uh, including Nigerian-born actor playwright Yimmy Goodman um, uh, Ajabadi, uh, are all seen as members of the cult. Uh, right, none of our the cult. The cult is international. It's got right. members from all over. Right. So yeah, this this feels a, a little it's a little weird to watch this one. It's also a little weird that Hammer picked this scene out and put it on their YouTube. They're like, here yeah. it is. Uh, but if you lean into the sort of like, here's a really stone dude um, summoned uh, to combat your heroes, then I kind of like that. It's kind of like, don't look at his eyes; he's really stoned. Yeah, yeah, and and he's like hypnotizing them, I guess, with his eyes to like yeah. get them to come into the circle of Baphomet. But I think they defeat him by throwing a crucifix. 
Uh, yeah. The first of several crucifix lobbings in the film. Yeah, and, the crucifix are like the holy hand grenade from Monty <laughs> yeah. Python. They make demons just explode. Yeah, one, two, five, and then they blow him up, and then they run out of the house. Now, I think the next big thing is that the Duke is like, uh, you must you must find Tanith uh, because I must go to the British Library and uh, what's he going to, he's like going to look into several occult tomes that are kept under lock and key. Fortunately, the person who runs the occult tome section is a friend of his. Yes. <laughs> Again, it's safe for uh, the Duke to be interested in these things and be knowledgeable of these things, but, but not you, not you, Simon. Simon, I'd rather you be dead than right. read some of the books that I've read. <laughs> so Rex, uh, the next scene we see with Rex, he's just got Tanith in the car and they're out driving in the country somewhere. And it, it's one of those weird scenes where somebody's already in the car with somebody. And then she's like, so why am I here? Where are we going? And then I'm like, well, why did she get in the car? What did they say before she got in the car? Yeah. I don't know. But then it becomes clear. He's like, I'm here to rescue you from Satanism. Yeah. And she's like, I don't want to be rescued. And uh, and then, yeah, it, it ultimately ends up being a whole chase sequence. Yes. Well, but also before that, he's like, I'm here to rescue you from Satan and take you out to lunch. Do you want to go yeah, on a date? Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so they're, they're planning on going to lunch at a friend's house. This is the house of Richard and Marie and their daughter, Peggy, who will become bigger characters in the third act. A lot of the second half of the movie takes place at their house. Uh, but I was also wondering about they're not sure who he's bringing. So it's like, hello, old friend. I brought a bride of Satan to your house for lunch. <laughs> I've kidnapped somebody. This is the other thing. This film has a lot of kidnappings in it. Simon has already been kidnapped. Yes. And now Tanith has been kidnapped. Yes. Uh, and there'll be more kidnappings to come. Yeah. She lured away on false pretenses, or I assume we don't know what they said before she got in the car, but uh, at least continuing along the journey after she has said, no, I would rather go back to my Satan worship, please. And uh, then this leads to a complex series of chases where she steals a car from somewhere and drives away. And then Rex has to chase after her. And there's a, there, you didn't expect a car chase in this movie, did you? But it, the car chase does involve Rex punching through his own windshield. <laughs> Yep. And uh, they, they eventually, oh, they use magic to make him wreck his car. And, yeah. But he he's knocked unconscious. Another, another concussion in this right. film. Right. Yes. And then she, uh, so she eventually makes her way back to Mokata because Mokata was like hypnotizing her through the, uh, the rearview mirror in the car. Well, mirrors are magic. We know that. Oh, that's right. So eventually Rex stumbles upon a satanic mass that Mokata is conducting in the woods Actually, it looks pretty tame. It's just a lot of people in like white robes, though the the bosses like uh, Mokata, he's wearing a purple robe. Yes. But a lot of people in white robes just drinking wine and dancing like it is not as debauched as some of the the uh, devil worship scenes in later movies would be. Right. But it does have the ultimate that they sacrifice a goat and then uh, here comes the the goat himself. Um, uh, we, we have this, uh, this wonderful appearance by the goat of, 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 of Mendes, uh, this, the goat headed humanoid form. And it looks very good. Uh, it's legitimately creepy. I think this was a, a scene that they pulled off rather well because he just kind of appears, uh, you know, it's like he's come out of the woods. You've thrown a satanic party that is fun enough that he is making an appearance and everyone gets very excited. Yeah. And one thing I, I noted was like when they when they cut the goat's throat in the sacrifice, it's like dropping the beat in the club. Like mm -hmm. everybody goes wild. 
Yeah, yeah, they get very excited about it. And yeah, uh, this, the goat looks great. It's not, uh, I should stress, it's not the goat you see on the poster. They took the head of the goat creature here and they put it on one of the, like probably the, the Charles Gray character, Mokata's uh, robed body and sort of built themselves a poster out of uh, images from the film. Mm. Well, anyway, at this uh, mass, it's where uh, Simon and Tanith are going to be baptized in the name of Satan. So Rex goes to a nearby payphone and summons the Duke. <laughs> Yeah. And so the Duke comes and joins him. And then they're like, oh, we've got to stop this. We've got to stop this before they are baptized to the evil one. So they decide they're going to. Uh, oh, how do they. Oh, uh, the Duke is like, I wish there were some light. And then he's like, what has light? The headlights of a car. So they're like, we can defeat them with car. Mm-hmm. So they get into a car and then they drive up on the uh, on the ceremony, blasting the headlights. I guess they turn the brights on. And that seems to, I don't know, it does something. Everybody's like, oh, and then they lob a second holy hand grenade. They throw a crucifix at the goat and the goat explodes. Yep, yep. And then Rex is in there punching Satanists, yep. uh, grabbing Tanith, carrying her off. And I was struck by the, uh, it's kind of ironic that we don't see the goat uh, creature. We don't see the, the the great goat, the devil himself, carrying uh, an unconscious woman. But we do see Rex grabbing uh, our female character and running off into the night with her. Yes. And they also, they rescue Tanith and Simon. And they take them back to Richard and Marie's house, uh, where where Christopher Lee promptly starts managing everybody's sleeping arrangements. He's like, you will go to bed, and you will sit beside the person who goes to bed. And commanding, yeah, so commanding people what to do. Uh, I think, so he he gives them all these instructions while he goes out to fetch some magical implements. Mm-hmm. And then there's another big set piece, which is, and this scene I actually thought was pretty effective in the way it was meant to be. Uh, the visit by Mokata. So yes. Charles Gray just shows up at the door. Mokata arrives at the house and he, I guess it's proper courtesy to invite someone in, even if they are the the priest of the high priest of Satan. So, uh, you know, he's invited in by, by Marie and then Mokata and Marie sit down in the study to have a conversation where he will ask her to hand Simon and Tanith over to him. He says, I'm not actually evil in magic. There is no good or evil. And then he tries to hypnotize her and bind her will to his by the power of darkness. And I got to say, props to Charles Gray in this scene. While he is often funny in this movie, in this scene, he is extremely good, I think. Actually, rather scary. Yeah, yeah, he is, he's great in this scene. There's also another sequence where it's just the the cultist marching out of the the observatory house mm-hmm. with some kind of thunderous music. And he's up front with a very stern look on his face where he also feels very... Uh, powerful and a little bit scary. Yeah, and he so he's he's hypnotized Marie, and he's like, "Where is Simon?" And she says, "Upstairs." Which, I mean, he probably could have guessed that. But in, anyway, uh, so he he's trying to, I guess, get get them out of the house. But then he fails because the kid living in the house, Peggy, she runs in asking for a snack or something. <laughs> She's like, "Where's my mm-hmm. ball?" And then Marie is snapped out of her trance and asks Mokata to leave. <laughs> and I, I thought that was funny, especially because Rachel was like, uh, it's the kid that's going to defeat the devil. Oh, yeah. It's also kind of, it reminded me, of course, of Indiana Jones. Like, next time, Dr. Jones, uh, it'll take more than children to save you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but so Mokata is asked to leave. He does. But then there's a great line. He says, I will not be back, but something will. Mm. Oh, and that's that's something. Uh, should we ta- talk about that something? Well, yeah. I mean, I guess this leads into the main thing that's left in the movie, which is the siege of the magic circle. So yeah. 
The Duke returns with his magical implements, and he draws a protective circle on the floor of the library in the house. Uh, it's got symbols all around it. And inside the circle, the Duke, Simon, Marie, and Richard have to wait out the night while being besieged by the forces of evil that are sent by Mokata. And I think conjured through the medium of Tanith, this got kind of complicated, but I think the idea is that Mokata somehow uses Tanith to like make himself more powerful. He like manifests power through her. And for that reason, Tanith is like, I can't be in the house. So meanwhile, while they're in the library, Rex and Tanith run off to a barn somewhere. Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly how all that works, but th that's where they go. Uh, and the other thing I was wondering, why don't Peggy and the butler have to be inside the magic circle? The other four people in the house are in the circle. Peggy and butler are just up in a room somewhere. Yeah, I would, I mean, I wouldn't want my child to see the forces of darkness that have been marshaled against me. Uh, but if they're going to be in the house with the forces of darkness, I think I would rather them be like in the circle. I, I guess today, if this were to happen, I could give like my son an iPad and he would be fine. He'd just watch Pokemon, and you could have the forces of darkness doing their thing outside the circle, and he wouldn't even look up. But how are you going to keep a kid this age distracted uh, during the 30s? I don't know. Well, anyway, so we get the siege here. And Rob, do you want to describe the attacks that befall them while they're, they're waiting out the night in the circle? All right. So, uh, yeah, so the first attack was Stone Dude. Second attack uh, was the Great He-Goat. Third attack... Uh, here, third summoning is going to be none other than the Angel of Death. And it is pretty alarming when this one's summoned because suddenly the door opens, white light spilling out, and a perhaps semi-transparent, it's hard to, hard to see, uh, winged horse rides in. And the rider on that horse is this individual in armor. You can't see his face, but then eventually he rides up close enough and uh, we get this close-up, like blue flames behind his head. The mask opens, and it's a skull. Yeah, the angel of death is here to claim a human soul. Rob, one thing. I agree with everything you said, but I think we're out of order here because I think the spider attacks before the angel Does of it? death. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, well, okay. In that case, we get a lackluster giant spider attack. <laughs> <laughs> right. So that comes, uh, tricks them with all these illusions. Like they, uh, the, the devil keeps simulating people they know asking for help or trying to get them to step outside the circle. It pretends to be Peggy being attacked by the spider, but it's not really her. Not and of really course, her. the Duke yeah. is like, control yourself, man. Stand there. And uh, uh, yeah, and then, but then we get the angel of death. I have to say the spider, again, the spider does not look very good. Uh, no, it's, it's uh, just a tarantula with, with uh, force perspective and, and mm -hmm. stuff. But then, so how do they defeat the angel of death? Christopher Lee has introduced this idea earlier that the only thing he can do to, to fight back against these forces is to say this spell, the most dangerous magic spell in the world. And he's like, I, I dare not say it unless our very souls are at peril because it could destroy the entire universe. <laughs> but I did memorize it just in case. Yeah. But he, he does say it. He says it at the angel of death and that, that banishes it. But at the end of the night, uh, so they've made it through, but things look bad because Rex comes back and he's holding the body of Tanith. Tanith has died. And also Peggy has disappeared. So, so, Ooh, they're in dire straits now, but uh, where have they gone? Well, the Duke has to figure this out by conjuring the ghost of Tanith in the body of Marie. And then again, commanding and yelling at her saying, tell me where have they gone? I command you. But this leads to a final confrontation at the mansion Mokata, where he has an on-site temple for human sacrifice. I think he's going to sacrifice Peggy for 
some reason. What is was it? He says it's the transference of souls. I think it's like if he sacrifices Peggy, then Tanith will be brought back to him. Maybe. Yeah, and they need Tanith for satanic reasons. For something, yeah. Uh, and then in the end, the ghost of Tanith speaking through Marie says the same dangerous spell that Christopher Lee said earlier, or gets the child to say it. And this destroys the cult, destroys Mokata, and then we get, oh, this ending. It's, it is oh. a causally justified, it was all a dream ending, where they wake up back at Richard and Marie's mm-hmm. house in the magic circle. Everyone who is dead is now alive, except Mokata, who has been killed in the in exchange. And uh, and the Duke explains, time has been reversed. Everything that happened, happened, but now it has not happened. <laughs> and then the movie just ends with a very stern insistence that God is in charge. Yeah, nothing like a time travel out of nowhere ending with the off-screen death of the villain, which also seems an awful lot like speculation on the Duke's part. He's just yeah. like, what happened to Mokata? He's like, oh, well, he died now in this new version of things that happened. Uh, I'm not going to show it to you or tell you what it, what, what it looked like, but trust me, it happened. Uh, and, then, and then one of the characters, maybe it's Rex or Simon's like, thank God. And, uh, and the Duke is like, yes, all thanks to God. So they. It they, is He we must thank. Yes, yes. <laughs> so all thanks go to God for uh, intervening, wiping out all the villains. Um, but unlike, say, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where pretty much a similar thing happens, like God enters the picture and just and fixes everything, mm-hmm. uh, and we get to see it, and, and Nazis explode and melt and so forth. Uh, instead, we're just told it happened. Don't worry about it. Everybody can go to bed. Yeah, it's kind of a deus ex machina. uh, And for some reason, why does the deus ex machina work in Raiders of the Lost Ark where it almost never works otherwise? I'm not sure. Because we get to watch the deus. That's the thing. Like we we get to see the, the forces of heaven come down from above. Uh, like we get to see the Hebrew God uh, avenge um, himself and his people against the, the Nazis and just utterly decimate them yeah. uh, with splendid special effects. Uh, and, you know, so obviously this film didn't have the budget for that sort of thing. Uh, but I think that's one of the reasons it works so well in, uh, in, uh, in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, I, I guess it's also the, the fact that at the end of Raiders that the that uh, Indy and Marion, their their insight that they have to survive the, at the end is humility and that they, they must humble themselves and close their eyes. Yeah, but I could imagine something like that happening in this film and I wouldn't have bought it with the Duke because the Duke yeah. would be like, I know exactly what's happening. Everyone close your <laughs> eyes. Simon, shut your eyes. <laughs> shut your eyes. I will keep my eyes open for the rest of you. <laughs> I can peek. It's okay. I know what I'm doing. Well, that brings up a really good question about I'm curious about the religious sensibilities of this movie, which are clearly mostly, you know, they're anti-devil and they're conservative. But what exactly is the religious affiliation of the Duke supposed to be? He he seems to be nominally Christian, at least insofar as Christianity is opposed to the devil, which is the bad guy. And there is one line where Christopher Lee like grills the ghost of Tanith with that question. He he says like, do you acknowledge Jesus Christ? But then Lee is just straight up doing occult magic and defeating the enemy with esoteric spells. So is he supposed to be a, a down the line conservative Christian or is he supposed to be an occult wizard? And at least all the environments I'm familiar with, these things are supposed to be mutually exclusive. Yeah, like, I mean, they don't really play up the idea that there's, like, good magic and bad magic. Like, that would have, I think that would have been kind of 
ultimately maybe a more modern telling of this, and maybe it would have been more fun if it was like, we have just dueling occultists here. Uh, one, just one occultist is leaning hard into the black magic, and the other one is a little more sensible about how he's using everything. But yeah, ultimately, I think we get more of that it's it's more like the um, it's more of the satanic panic energy. It's ultimately kind of more like the um, like the Heinrich Kramer or Hammer of the Witches kind of energy, where it's like I'm I can be super knowledgeable about all of this stuff and like weirdly super into it, but it's okay because I'm here to stamp it out, right. you know. Uh, but yeah, we don't see Christopher Lee's character, the Duke, going to church or anything. Uh, <laughs> he just name drops Jesus and uh, and God, you know, twice in the whole picture. And throws the uh, the crucifix grenades. Yeah, he'll throw he'll heave some some crosses around for sure. So yeah, ultimately uh, it's it's a very fun picture. There's a lot lot to think about if you approach it from the right direction. Um, so I, I recommend it. You can you can pick this one up in a few different uh, places. There are some different hammer uh, like DVD packs and so forth. But in 2019, Shout Factory put out an absolutely amazing Blu-ray edition. Uh, this is the one that we rented from Videodrome for this episode. And uh, yeah, this one would make the great He-Goat proud. Lots of extras, uh, wonderful uh, bright yellow He-Goat um, uh, menu screen that I was very impressed with, and just more more extras and special features than you could conceivably even want. <laughs> like uh, Christopher Lee has his own commentary track on this one. Mm. So um, I, I recommend picking that up or renting it if you have the opportunity to do so. Uh, you might find it streaming somewhere as well. I'm not sure what the exact streaming options might be for this picture. We'd love to hear from everyone out there, though, if you have thoughts on this picture or others. Uh, you know, what, what are your favorite Hammer horror films? We know we have some, some Hammer fans out there. Uh, write in, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, Weird House Cinema comes out every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We're primarily a science podcast, but on Fridays, we set most of the serious matters aside and we just talk about a weird film such as this one. Um, I also go ahead and mention that I maintain a blog, uh, samutamusic.com, uh, S-E-M-U-T-A-M-U-S-I-C. Uh, and uh, that's just a blog where I'll, I'll list the episodes that we have done on Weird House Cinema. So if you want a complete list of the films we've looked at, as well as some embedded media here and there, with, you know, trailers that we discuss, uh, bits of music that we discuss, I will host them there. Big thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. But he is out this week, so huge thanks as well to our guest producer, Paul Deccant. Uh, really appreciate you stepping in, Paul. Uh, if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback, on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. 
And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.